Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we dissect a chapter and episode of some of our favorite Ruby books. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. And I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So Nadia, we've talked online on Twitter and I think maybe a couple emails for a while, but we got to really spend time together recently at RubyConf. Yeah, that's right. How was that experience for you to get to kind of hang out with me and, and talk and stuff? Nah, it was, <laughs> it was fabulous to, <laughs> to finally hang out. It was good. Like you say, we'd always had the brief thing on Twitter, but never really had a chance to sit down and talk. And when we did, yeah. we found out we had quite a few things in common. Exactly. And I remember we went to a talk together and we just kind of started talking afterwards and we stayed in that room for maybe an hour. It was a very long time. And one of the things that we talked about was how we really wanted to be better programmers, that we saw code as a craft and we wanted to hone in on that craft. And we talked about how reading books is a really good way to do it. And we just couldn't find the time or maybe the discipline <laughs> to buckle down and, you know, read those books that we really should be reading. Right. And I think we were both at a time where we had responsibilities at work, which took us away from coding. So mm -hmm. um, you were starting at Microsoft with the program that you were running and I was starting my company and we were both wary of us losing touch with the day-to-day -day coding. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And so this is our way of solving that problem. This is our way of saying every single week we're going to read at least one chapter of a very awesome book in Ruby. We're going to become better developers and hone in on our skill and we want to share that adventure with you. So we would love for you to come join us on that adventure. So Nadia, where can they do that? Well, you can follow our reading adventures on Twitter um, at Ruby Book Club and visit the website rubybookclub.com to find out more and to join in the discussion. So our first book is Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. Um, actually, I remember in that conversation we had at RubyConf, um, I'd mentioned um, that one of my frustrations was that, was that I had Confident Ruby sitting on my Kindle for almost a year and I just hadn't found the time to start it. Mm -hmm. and, and you said, actually, that's a book I've wanted to read for a long time too. Exactly. And, you know, Avdi is just such an amazing person you know he's just so, he's so kind such a good speaker really cares about the community and so the chance to really dive into his book and get to basically have him talk to me for a couple hundred pages is very exciting yeah i i'd just been working with him on the committee for rubyconf as well and and that was an amazing experience so this was this was a way of continuing on you know communicating with abdi um and he has no idea i know creepy <laughs> <laughs> so there's a wonderful forward at the beginning of, of, of this book, isn't there? There is a wonderful forward. And I feel I feel kind of bad talking about it because I think that it's, um, I, I want to give like a spoiler alert. So if you haven't read it, you should stop and, and read that part, just two pages before you come back to it. Now that you've been properly warned. Um, it starts off with, I met Avdi in 2011 at RubyConf in New Orleans. I was no one special, just an anonymous nerd who'd been browbeat into giving a talk or two. And it starts off super casual. And when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, who is this random person that got to write the foreword of Avdi Grimm's book? You know, who is this? And who is it, Nadia? Well, this is the thing. My version of the book actually didn't have a forward and you sent it to me. And I was thinking the same thing. Who is this random person? Until I got to the third paragraph and it said, I confess that I was working on a book, Practical Object Oriented Design in Ruby. And I said, oh my God, it's Sandy. <laughs> yeah. 
that was the moment where I sent my first really excited tweet. It was like 1 a.m. last night, and I read that line. I was like, oh, my God, this could be the best book ever. And then I tweeted about it. But yeah, what I what I really loved about that forward being besides the fact that it was Sandy talking to us and it was a very nice surprise um, was the fact that, you know, you really you really got to see an example of collaboration, right? Because they met at, a, at RubyConf, just like we were talking about this idea at RubyConf. And, you know, it really started from a very rich conversation. And in that forward, it talks about how Avdi helped a lot writing Pooter, which if you don't know, is a very, very good, very popular book um, called Practical Object-Oriented uh, Design in Ruby. And you should definitely read it and check it out. And you got to see, you know, the Ruby world, the Ruby community come together to help each other in just those two pages and that to me was very touching yeah it was really great and it just reminded me of um the amazing time that i had at, at rubyconf and meeting all these people that you sort of look up to and are inspirations in the community and you have those hallway conversations where ideas are born like this podcast um and you get inspired and and so it was really cool to see that between um avdi sandy and also jim wyrick who who was mentioned in that in that conversation as well mm-hmm for sure. So let's really get into the meat of the book. So the introduction is really, really awesome. And it sets a really great tone and really gives us the right context for everything else. What did you like about the introduction? What stood out to you about it? Two things stood out for me. One was this idea about self-confidence. So when you're coding, um, before you get to the code and you're writing code, you have to have this confidence and belief in yourself and that will help you tell interesting stories with your code um i love the idea that really it wasn't it was introduction that wasn't really tied to code that much it was more about storytelling and and what avdi does is um evoke the idea of reading a story like reading a novel and he uses the choose your own adventure um series style of books as an example for how stories can be told well or told in a very messy way and so choose your own adventure for anyone that doesn't know um are those books where you get to the end of a page and it says what do you do do you go left or do you go right um and if you go left then don't go to this page and if you go right go to that page and avdi asks you to imagine reading that book just cover to cover without without following the instructions and it's a mess and he says that's exactly the kind of code you don't want to write <laughs> one that doesn't flow and doesn't have a narrative and to me that that example was so powerful one because it's very very relatable right i think we've all probably done some version of a choose your own adventure whether it's a book or a game or you know whatever that is and the second thing I really liked about it is I feel like people are always talking about how writing code is like storytelling. And to be totally honest, I didn't quite understand what in the world they were talking about. You know, when I think of stories, I think of a protagonist and they go through a plot and there's a, you know, a climax, you know, like I, I think of kind of those pieces. And, and there's also just the emotional engagement that happens if you write a good story. And I felt like this was the first example where someone talked about code in terms of a story and it made so much sense it just clicked with that example for me yeah and what's interesting is that it was also like avdi was telling a story about the journey you were about to go on right as you learned right. the techniques he was going to 
tell you about. And so by the time I got to the end of the introduction, I was like, oh, that was a really meaty first chapter. I want to see what happens next. I, w- I was excited, which is a really cool feeling to get from a coding book. It's the kind of feeling I tend to get from novels. What's going to happen next? Um, and so that was that was great that he managed to get that across. Yeah, yeah. And I remember because I, I read this, you know, pretty late last night. And up until that point, you know, I was I was reading, I was going along. And then when I got to that point, I literally sat up straight and I said, holy crap, this is going to be amazing. Um, and that's when I sent my my second tweet out to share that. Um, and one of the things that I, I really appreciate this is it it talks about it's very explicit. Right. I think that a lot of people, especially in the code newbie community, can, you know, have concerns and get very frustrated with programming books because they say they're an introduction. They say they're for beginners, but there's so many assumptions that are made about what you know and what you're coming in with. And with this example, you know, you really are starting at, you know, at zero, which is exactly where I want to start, you know, and you, it feels like we're about to go on this journey together and it doesn't feel like, Avdi is at this really high place that I'm frantically trying to grasp and, and reach. So I, I really like just the explicitness of the, of the writing. Having said that, there is that explicitness and feeling like you're starting from the beginning. But I feel like this is a book that anyone, no matter how many years of coding you've got, um, could learn from the ideas in here. Um, because, you know, anyone can take these kind of general principles and say, now, how am I doing against, you know, having code that is clear and and separates concerns and tells a story and and so I feel like you know anyone can pick this book up and and sort of use it as a yardstick for how they're doing no matter what their experience level is exactly exactly so one of the first things that he teaches you and, and kind of the way he thinks about things is he talks about how this book is really about writing methods and it's not about you know classes necessarily or you know kind of big picture architecture. It's really about breaking down how a method should work, how it should be structured and what we should think about. And that to me, like even even that idea to me is is pretty new. You know, when I think about coding strategies and how to write good code, I think about it in terms of, okay, what classes do I need? And, you know, should they be models, service objects, you know, how, where, where do they fit in and what's their role? And here we're starting at a more granular level at just the method and what the method should do. Which I also think is very helpful in general when you're looking for study resources. Often it can be quite easy to feel overwhelmed. It's like, this is going to teach me everything. And then you kind of get overwhelmed. Um, but with this, it's like, okay, I know exactly what I'm going to be able to do by the end of this thing. And it's it's a very manageable piece that you can that you can keep in your head as you work through it. So one of the first things that he talks about is the four parts of a method. And he says that if you look at any line of code in a method, they're organized or it is, you know, categorized in one of four. You know, there's collecting input, performing work, delivering output, handling failures. And he says that sometimes diagnostics and cleanup are also categories, but they're not very common. So we're sticking with those four. What was your kind of reaction to seeing those four categories? Did that intuitively make sense to you? Yeah, it seemed really straightforward in the sense that if you said, I have this task that I need to do. So first of all, I'm going to gather all the things I need. And then I'm going to mix them all together in some way. And then I'm going to present it to you. 
Um, and it kind of reminded me of cooking <laughs> in the sense, like getting your ingredients, mixing them all together, presenting it. And in case people don't like it, how are you going to handle that? Um, and so it, That's true. Yeah, I like that. It's interesting because it did keep, seem quite straightforward to me. But obviously, um, when we code, we I think we often don't. And as he goes on to show us, we, we although it seems quite straightforward, it must be quite difficult to really always structure your code in this way given the the range of things that we're always trying to do yes and and that that's exactly what i was thinking too i was thinking man do i you know when i write my next method do i have to pick you know which one do which one does it do and the the thing that i like about the way he framed it is he doesn't say your method should do one of these four things you know it's not a declaration coming from him to you it's saying if you were to look at a method it's probably going to end up doing one of these four things so it felt more of an more like an observation of what we're likely to do more than it is a directive of what we should be doing. And he gives this, you know, the first example he gives is a, a pretty, you know, lengthy method. And at first glance, you know, I was like, oh, God, I got to understand what this means. And what I love about it, and, you know, going back to his strategy of how to, you know, how to write a good book and explain things is he breaks it up, you know, he breaks it up into small pieces, we digest it one by one. And he goes through literally each line and is able to say, you see this, this one line of code, this falls into the gathering input category, this other line gathers, you know, it falls into the um, presenting the information, you know, he, he does it for you line by line, and you start to really see those connections. And that exercise is was really, really helpful for me. Yeah, so the example he gives is this idea of importing purchase records. So we've got a system and it's going to distribute ebooks in various formats to buyers. Um, so it's a brand new system, a new project, there's no legacy code there. Um, and normally what would happen is you'd buy ebooks um, off the shelf from a shopping cart system. Um, and so that means that there was lots of purchase data, which also need to be imported into the new new system. And you're presented with what that data looks like. Um, and so the task in the first chapter is writing a method that handles um, imports of that CSV data from the old system to the new system. And so he, he sort of says, right, the method we're writing is import legacy purchase data. What are we going to do? And, and like you say, he starts by just using, no, not code, just English sentences to say, here's a step-by-step -step of what we need to do. And I think the really clever thing about this is that he starts with six bullet points of things like parse the purchase records, you know, use the records ID to do, to find or create a product record. And then he goes through that list, iterates over that list, turning it more and more into code examples before it, they become code. And then he, and then he's like, well, there you go. There's your method. Yes, exactly. Like that, that process was so beautiful. It was so small, so incremental. And exactly, you know, as you said, at those six points, you start to see the methods forming and you start to see it become like, you know, real code. One of the things that he talks about um, is identifying the message first and then identifying the receiver role. So there's this really great table that I love. It has two columns. On the left, it says the message, which we did in that exercise of the six steps. And then on the right, it says who should basically receive that message. One thing that I feel like I'm still not really clear on is what exactly a role is. So it says, if a message identifies one responsibility, a role brings together one or more responsibilities that make sense to be handled by the same object. 
So when I read that, I thought, okay, so it's a class. But then he says, a role is not the same concept as a class. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> so now I, I kind of feel like I'm still not exactly clear on what the role is or what it looks like. Did you have any any more clarity on that? So I just want to go over that sentence again. However, a role is not the same concept as a class. More than one type of object may play a given role. And in some cases, a single object might play more than one role. So basically, you can think of what I, what I think he's getting at here is the smallest unit you've got is a responsibility. So A, B, C, D, E, a basket of responsibilities. And then you've got these idea of roles. So if you think of, well, let's think about it like a workplace, I guess. So um, you can have someone who's responsible for sending out comms emails, someone who's responsible for registering everyone when they come in, um, and maybe um, sending out the comms emails is a big job. And so it's split between two people. So uh, Sarah sends out comms emails, but Jane also sends out comms emails. But um, the, the, the basket of responsibilities that they both have vary. Um, and so they have different roles <laughs> and, and I think what Avdi is saying is within a class, um, you can have a class can, um, encompass all of the roles that Sarah and Jane do, um, or it might have what Sarah and David does. And so you can take people and put them together in cohorts and that represents your class. Now, I don't know if that. Uh, analogy helped to confuse or <laughs> enlighten well so that. my question yeah so in that example if the roles would the roles be things like you know this is the person responsible for or see it whenever i think of roles i keep going back to responsibility like differentiating the role and the responsibility is a thing that i get tripped up on because i think like you know my role as a program manager is to manage the program which is also my responsibility so like how do you in your mind like where is that separation between the role and the responsibility i guess the only way it can make sense to me is if responsibilities are more granular so you said your role is to manage the program so i would say therefore it's your responsibility to make sure that you refactor the code it's your responsibility to make sure there are tests um and so that's the the, the only way the the differentiation differentiation can make sense to me is if we're talking about just more um, granular actions okay that makes sense. So in that sense, you know, if there are multiple people working on the project, um, you know, I might be the project manager, you might be the, you know, project coordinator. To some degree, it is both, you know, we both play the role of managing project, of managing the project. But we have different responsibilities. But we have different responsibilities. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, Nadia. If anyone is listening to this and thinks we've totally missed the point, or <laughs> please <laughs> let us know. Up, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Um, Avdi, if you're listening as well, feel free to clarify <laughs> um, the distinction here. But one thing that I, I do like about this and what it revealed about my own kind of approach to things, and that's really what this is about. You know, it's to me, it's not just about what is a role, what's a responsibility, what's a class. It's more of how you get to the end, right, that process. And what it what it really highlighted to me was that 
I think very much in classes first. Like I think, okay, I know that this thing exists. I wanted to do, you know, these three tasks. What's the right class for it, for it? You know, what's the right, do I need an active record, you know, object for it? Do I need to do just a, you know, plain old Ruby object? You know, what, what, what is the tool that I need? And he addresses this a little bit later because he says, um, he says, the messaging language we come up with will be dictated by the methods already defined on those classes. And so that to me is like, that's, and I said, yes, oh my God, that's exactly what I do that I, you know, that I need to apparently stop doing. Because I look at my classes and I say, what already exists? What do I already have? Okay, how can I use that? What can I, what, you know, what can I add to it? And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't even mention the classes that we have. In that example with the six steps about the purchasing data and you know doing that import, there's no mention of the classes that exist. There's no mention of what models we're working with or what methods they may already have. All he starts with is, you know, these are the messages I want to receive. Based on those messages, here are all the people who need to receive them. And then from there, we can have a conversation about, okay, given that these people need to exist or these objects need to exist, you know, or not even objects, right? These roles need to exist. What are the corresponding classes, objects, you know, what comes from that point? And I think the powerful thing about that is that it's a really good way for problem solving in general, because what Avdi is essentially saying is, if you start thinking in the frame of what, frame of mind of all of the pieces you already have, then you might be missing better solutions. And you might be trying to squeeze things into something that doesn't fit. And it's interesting because, you know, at work, I'm always pairing with my business partner, Theo, and he's got way more experience than me. And often, you know, we'll get out pen and paper and we'll just draw some lines and boxes, lines and boxes around what, you know, what messages need to be sent. And sometimes what's interesting is through doing that, we spot that the way we set up something else previously is not quite right. And 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 so we need to restructure other code because we realize actually this was we we developed a part of the program based on things we already have. And when we later on do this more free thinking problem solving, we realize um, there's a better way to organize this stuff that more matches um, the functionality that we need our code to have. Um, and then it's also, then the next step is not being afraid to then re do a complete restructure or throw away a certain bit of code because long-term it's gonna be much easier. Um, and, the, and the other thing is, you know, it happens in the in the other way too, where we find something that we thought about at the time, and and a data structure or a, or um, a format that made that seemed to fit the problem then. And later on, other other features being um, effortless because it was just set up correctly, and it happened to be set up correctly in the first way. So I think this idea of starting on the small scale for each problem and say, well, in the ideal world, how would I do this? You know, and Avdi says you know, sometimes you will say, aha, this is the perfect, um, I know the, the the class that's, you know, this is the perfect job for that class that I've already got. Um, but I think he's saying don't start from there because you unnecessarily restrict yourself and you might miss out on um, cleaner, cleaner code. Exactly. Yeah. And specifically the part, I'm just finding it now, that I really liked is he says, when we set out to write a method with our minds filled with knowledge about existing objects and their capabilities, it often gets in the way of identifying the vital plot of the story we're trying to tell. Always bring it back to stories, which I love. 
And he says, the tale becomes more about the tools we happen to have lying around than about the mission we first set out to accomplish. And that's exactly what you're talking about. So starting without those constraints in, you know, our ideal made-up world is a, is a very good strategy. So a little bit later, um, he talks a little bit about the issue with type checking. Yeah, you know, I think this was one of the first examples, if I remember this correctly, where he ties it back to being a confident developer and writing confident code, right? And he talks about how when we're dealing with different conditionals, you know, when we have more than we really should, and when we do things like use dot try, which I'm guilty of, and you know, these these other different ways, what we're doing is we're type checking, which we shouldn't have to do. And he specifically calls that unconfident code. Yes, I'm just looking at this section here now. He says, make no mistake, nil class is just another type. Asking an object if it is nil, even implicitly, so you know when you do duck, ampersand, ampersand, duck, dot, quack, <laughs> or like you said, try, it's type checking just as much as explicitly checking if the object's class is equal to nil class. Um, yes, I felt myself turn red at that paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> FD has shamed you. Yeah, <laughs> yes, virtually shamed me. Um, yeah, and he writes a little bit later, he says, as confident coders, we want to tell our ducks to quack and then move on. And and again, you know, establishing that relationship between us and our code, right? If we're constantly asking it, you know, do you know what you are? Are you the right thing? You know, that is, that's introducing doubt and that's not confident. And we want to be confident as coders and we want to be confident in what we write. And so I think a great talk to watch um, around this kind of stuff is the talk that Sandy was doing last year. She did it at RailsConf, um, Nothing is Something. And that's a great talk around this idea of nil checking and what that says and, and better ways to handle that. Yeah, that's a, a beautiful, beautiful talk. Definitely highly recommend that. You, and, it, and, it, and it's a perfect time to sort of come back to the theme of confidence because he says, you know, now this is what being a confident coder means, this idea that we don't do this type checking and we've got, we've, we understand what our program's doing and how messages and roles are, are fitting together. And so um, the, next, the next chapter is gonna be looking at um, assembling these methods and adapting their inputs um, so that, as he says here, we have a flock of reliable, obedient ducks to work with. <laughs> I love that so much. That's really great. Yeah. So next week, we're going to talk about chapter two, which is collecting input. And we hope you stick around for that. Um, and let us know what you thought of, of chapter one. And if you had any feedback, anything that stuck out to you or that got you really excited, um, or if you had any comments about what we talked about on the show. Yep. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd love to get a discussion going as we read the book. See you next week. See you next week. <laughs>